Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. invite you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13 and I know this is the third week in what is the worst chapter in all of the book of Nehemiah it's one of the ugliest chapters in the whole counsel of God and the reason we're spending three weeks in this book is in this chapter is because we don't want to miss what Nehemiah saw we don't want to miss what the Holy Spirit uh, uh, allowed it to be put in his word to teach us and we don't want to go back to that place where God has delivered us from. And so we find uh, some great insights on how we cannot go back and experience this thing called deja vu. And that is the title of the message, Deja Vu. Now you may be wondering, yeah, deja vu, you've been preaching in this same chapter for three weeks. Well, that's all right. It'll get the point across to you. Now, as you find your way in Nehemiah, I want to tell you, remind you, next week we start that brand new uh, journey through the gospel according to John. This video that you just saw as a transition is on Facebook, and I want to invite you, if you're a Facebooker, to put that on social media, share that everywhere, because we want everybody to know that a brand new thing is starting, and it's going to be good for everybody. Now, in chapter 13, uh, Nehemiah had gone back to Susa to be with the governor, which he said he would do, and now he returns, and when he returns, he, fi he, he finds a people that he had left, man, they were blessed by God. God had poured out himself in this amazing miracle. They had built this wall uh, in 52 days, nothing short of just an epic miracle uh, from God. And, 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 and the people are excited. They celebrated because God was doing this cool thing. And no longer was God this God that their ancestors talked about. He was a God that is up close and personal. And for those of us that have experienced God up close and personal, there's nothing like that. And here's a whole nation, man, that is just uh, excited and captivated by the presence of God in their life. But Nehemiah left, and while he's gone, things change. Deja vu. They went right back to where they were before God had touched them. And so Nehemiah gets back, and he starts cleaning the house, and, and, and he points out some things that are signs that we're moving in the wrong direction. It, he points out some things that if that is the, the way our life is described, we're moving further away from God and not closer to God. Now, what are those things? The first one we talked about was a disregard for authority, biblical counsel. When we get to a place in our personal life or as a church where we want the Bible to say what we want it to say, where we want the Bible to affirm where we live in disobedience, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction. And we, and we don't like authority. None of us do. It's part of the fall that happened in the garden, chapter 3, Genesis. When we fell, we just kind of reject authority. And it co so it pushes against the grain of us. So I just want to warn you, never spurn the authority of God's word in your life because God doesn't want to hurt you he doesn't want to hurt us as a church he wants to help and move us to a, a new and a, and a more beautiful place in our relationship and encounter with his greatness number two the second thing Nehemiah points to that that is a sign that we're moving further away from God is an unprotected community we talked about trimming your circle you'll remember Nehemiah comes in and he sees this room man inside the wall that was dedicated 
dedicated to the things of God. They had moved that stuff out. And Tobiah, who was a nemesis of uh, Nehemiah, who stood against the work that God had for him, they've given him an apartment. You know, it says, come on in for a group hug. We got a place for you. And he was the enemy. And often what happens in our circle, in our community, in our life, we allow those people into our life who are not there to help you be more godly. They're not there to help you follow Jesus more. They're there to destroy your walk with God. And so we have to be very careful in protecting our up-close community. The third thing that we saw was crippled generosity. The people, when he left, he had established, reestablished the Old Testament commitment to give a third of their income to the temple. A third, yeah, because it was their tax system. It paid for their government. It paid for the priest. It paid for all the things of the temple. So they gave a third of a shekel. They gave a third of their income. And so they had stopped Nehemiah. As soon as Nehemiah left, they said they got white knuckle man they started hanging on to the resources and 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 that's the way we do today all three of those things 2500 years ago paints a picture of who we are today we do the same thing we have a tendency to to um, have that those things in our life and that move us further away from God I'm proud of our church and when it comes to generosity I think our church is moving in the right direction people are are becoming liberated from um from Uh, the stranglehold of resources because we have a tendency to think you know if I just made a little bit more money then I would let God have some and 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 then we when God allows us to make a little bit more money even though we haven't been good stewards with the last all of a sudden that portion that we thought we would now give to the Lord it gets consumed by the things in our world And, and so our church I think is becoming liberated from that where people are saying you know what at the end of the day You know, it's all his anyway, so I'm just going to go ahead and let him have it now. And when we do that, we're under the blessing, and God uh, blesses our resources, not just financially. I mean, that's part of it. But our health, our families, I mean, it changes. It, it, It changes the dynamics of everything we do. So I'm very proud of where our church is at right there, and we don't want to go back. The fourth thing on the back of your worship guide, a sign that we're moving further away from where God would have us into the land of deja vu, what we've seen before, instead of closer to a new place where God wants to take us, is Christian accountability. Christian accountability. In Nehemiah, we're going to see in just a minute, they had They didn't need any Christian accountability. They didn't want to come together any longer on the Sabbath. Their their priorities didn't allow for Christian accountability. Now, I have stationed up here. I'm going to move it out. This chair, and I'm going to tell you what this chair represents in just a little bit. But this chair represents this room. This room is full of chairs. and, And we're going to talk about how that is connected to you and what that means. I want you to know, because maybe nobody's told you in a long time, you are valued. You are valued. It is important that you're here. It's really important to me, because if you're not here, it's not near as fun looking at a room full of empty chairs. I'll do it, okay? I'm going to do it. But it's more fun when when, when you all are looking back at me. And so you're valued. You have a place. You see, when... When you receive Christ into your life and he saves you and his Holy Spirit seals you with an eternal mark that you are now an adopted child of the Most High God. When when that happens, he brings you into the family through Jesus. 
okay? When he brings you into the family, he brings you into his eternal church. And in bringing you into his eternal church, he wants you to find a local church body to flesh out what he's done from an eternal perspective. I hope that makes sense. The church on this earth, the local assembly, is God's demonstration, God's picture, God's tool or instrument to demonstrate what he's going to do eternally. You see, and you've got a place in it. I would go on record, and this is uncomfortable for a preacher to say this, but I would go on record and say this. If you don't have a local church that you can just love, then find one. If this is not it, don't stay here and make us miserable with your presence, okay? Find a church that you can love, all right? It's really important. It's important that you have that place. You see, in 1 Corinthians 12, how important, how valued are you to the church? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18 says, but as a matter of fact, God has placed each of the members in the body just as he has decided. Let me pause right there. It means he's talking about the church. He's talking about his eternal church. He's talking about the local church. He's talking about you. Tell your neighbor he's talking to you. He has made you a member of his eternal body. Not only that, he has an assignment for you. He says he has decided which part you will play. That's just kind of cool. That God in his eternal sovereignty, before he even formed you, he knew what place you would play in his local church. He says this in verse 19. He says, if they were all the same member, in other words, the same part of the body, where would the body be? So now there are many members, but only one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor in turn can the head say to the foot, I don't need you. On the contrary, those members that seem to be weaker, they're essential. And those members we consider less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our unpresentable members are clothed with dignity. But our presentable members do not need this. Instead, God has blended the body giving greater honor to the lesser member so that the mutual concern uh, so that there may be no division in the body but the members may have mutual concern for one another if one member suffers everyone suffers with it if a member is honored all rejoice with it now we are Christ's body and each of you is a member of it each of you is a member of it did you get what it said <clears throat> when one person is hurting or suffering we all hurt and suffer together that's the way it's supposed to be it says if one person is rejoicing, man, we all rejoice together. It's why when I get a phone call that someone has lost a loved one, I get a phone call that somebody's in the hospital, man, it, it grieves my heart. God, as a pastor, God placed that. I didn't used to have a grieving heart. But I didn't know how I could be a pastor when he called me because I wasn't very pastory. I wasn't very compassionate. You know, if somebody's hurting, you know, come on, toughen up. And so he sent me into the depth of suffering to experience the miserableness of being in a dark place. Why? So as a pastor, when you hurt and I know about it, I hurt with you. I, don't, I didn't ask for that. 
It's just there. And so that's what he does for us as a body. He, does, he wants to do the same thing for you. So when people around you, in your circle, in your community, in the local church, when they're hurting, you hurt with them. But the flip side's true. When Jerry gave his testimony, when, when you were baptized, man, we celebrated. We celebrated. When somebody comes from darkness into light, from hell bound to heaven bound, we celebrate that. It's good. Amen? Amen. So that's the way the church is designed to be. But often, it doesn't turn out like that. Because we get back to the ways we did things before, before we understood who it is we're supposed to be. I share, I've been sharing for a long time that in America this year, between four and 5,000 churches will close the doors on Sunday for the last Sunday. Oblivion, they're gone, okay? Those numbers I read this week have moved now, it's about 7,500 churches will close this year. Why? It's, it's, it's the church that Jesus began, man. Why is that? Because people in the church stopped worrying about the people outside the church, and they started worrying about each other. You happy? I'm happy. If we're happy, then we're going to heaven and to hell with the rest of everybody else. Now you say, well, that's harsh. That's what the church becomes. That's deja vu. When you stop being who we're supposed to be according to this book and we start wanting it to be who we want it to be, we can forget it. We're doing church without the chief of the church who is Jesus Christ. And so we've got to stay close. Now, what does it look like when a people move back to the place where they were before they had an encounter with the truth of God? Before they really understood who it is they're supposed to be. Well, it looks like this 2,500 years ago. And it still looks like this today. Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 15 says, Now, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys, along with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them on the day that they sold these provisions, and the people from Tyre who lived there were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem and of, of, of all places. Verse 17, so I registered a complaint with the nobles of Judah, saying to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Now, he, he comes in there and he says, listen, they're doing everything on the Sabbath day but what they're supposed to be doing on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah would not, I don't think, have had a problem as much if, if there were some things going on beyond what they were supposed to be doing, but they had eliminated everything that the Sabbath was supposed to be, and it had become just like every other day. Now, let me explain. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath is the last day of the week. It's the day in the Genesis account when God rested of all, his, uh, all of his creative uh, activity. And so then he establishes a rule that Saturday would be the Shabbat, the Sabbath, a day of rest. A day given uh, not to the world, but to God. Just one day. One of the seven. Just save me a day. And I'll take care of you. I'll bless you. Just give me a day. And I'll make the other days better than they would have been if you didn't give me the one day. And what did they do? They just did away with a day dedicated to God. 
So, so now what's the result of this? Verse 18, Nehemiah says, Isn't this the way your ancestors acted? causing our God to bring on them and on this city all this misfortune. And now you're causing even more wrath on Israel, profaning the Sabbath like this. Pause. Did, did you pick up on that, how serious God is about a day yielded, surrendered, and given to him and to him alone? He says, because you did this, even our ancestors, they were under the misfortune of God, and now we're bringing more wrath on ourselves simply because we no longer have a day yielded and surrendered to him. Now, that's just hard truth. Because in the world we live in, 2,500 years later, we look like that. Where our Sabbath, which is the Sunday, let me explain, why then don't we worship on Saturday? Because we worship not the Sabbath because we're not under the law. We worship the Lord's Day because we're under Jesus. Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. We worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Why? That's when the early church came together, was on the Lord's Day, Sunday. So now what do we do about it? So we, we realize who we are. We realize the magnitude of the problem. So what do we do about it? Verse 19 says, when the evening shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be closed. I further directed that they were not to be opened until after the Sabbath. I positioned some of my young men at the gates so that no load could enter on the Sabbath day. The traders and the sellers of all kinds of merchandise, they spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. Verse 21, I like Nehemiah. But I personally, okay, he says, I warned them and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you repeat this, I will forcibly remove you. From that time on, they did not show up on the Sabbath. Then I directed the Levites to purify themselves and come and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. So here, here's what happens. Nehemiah says, time out, guys. We, we, we're not doing this. Okay, and you and you and you, you're hindering who it is we're supposed to be. So not only are we locking the gate so you're out, not only that, but if I catch you even hanging out outside the camp, I will forcibly have you removed. Do you hear how serious Nehemiah is about protecting a day that's supposed to be given to God? He ain't messing around. I, I love a Christian man with a spine. Women, watch this. Women, do you love a Christian man who has a spine? Yes. Some of them not convinced. Men, I want to tell you, you grow a spiritual spine. You have some tenacity about your faith. Your wife and your family, they will admonish and admire and pursue and follow you. Now, it, it may not come easy at first because there's an enemy at war in your family, but I'm telling you, a man who follows Jesus and has a spine and has tenacity, God will use them in their family, in the workplace, and in the church. It's just that simple. And it's not a knock on women. You should have a spine too. But I just believe today, as statistics tell us, women honestly do a better job at pursuing God well than men do. And so it's time that we spine up. So why is it? Why is it that they had gotten away 
from doing what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath. Why is that? Because it's human nature. And I want to explain something. Has anybody, I'm looking for uh, transparency. Has anybody in here ever had a habit that you would rather not have had or would rather not currently have? Anybody had a habit you'd rather not have? Now, you don't have to tell me what it is. You don't have to blurt it out, you know. Okay, the Lord knows, all right? We've had them. Okay, has anybody ever developed a habit that was a good habit, that you, were, you stayed with it, a good habit? All right, let me explain something. This is true about habits. Why is it that the bad habits are so easy to start, man, and yet so hard to break? And why is it that the good habits are terribly hard to start and terribly easy to break? That's true. Let me give you an example. Smoking cigarettes. I don't smoke cigarettes, okay? I don't dip skull. I smoked about two cigarettes in my life, about threw up, dipped one, had one dip of skull, did throw up in a friend's car, okay? <laughs> Between that friend and my stomach, I never did either of those anymore, okay? I know people who smoke. Honestly, they don't want to smoke. They hadn't even told me. If you smoke, you know you don't want to smoke. Every time you pick up a pack, up a pack it says you're going to die. This box will kill you. Enjoy. Okay? Give me $5 for, I don't even know how much cigarettes are, but it's, it's a lot. Okay? Not, they, but they, you can't, it's a, it's a habit that was so easy to start, yet it's so hard to break. Give me a patch or two. Okay? Give me, Derm. What, you know, you see the advertise, that, all that to get them off because it's, it's so hard to break that habit. Alcohol. You may be here and you drink, you say, well, I don't have a problem with it. Just keep doing it. You might. Okay? I will never be an alcoholic because I don't drink alcohol. Okay? And we can go on uh, to 11B on Monday nights, and people down there, they didn't want to be alcoholics, but they cannot quit. Why? Because it's a, a habit that's so easy to start and yet so hard to break. Overeating. Anybody had a problem with overeating but me? Okay. I love to stink and eat. I was raised with three boys, and all of I'm the smallest one. And my whole life, if there's food in a bowl, you better eat it now because it's going to be gone in a few minutes. And I got three brothers that look like Jethro Bodine. So I knew when it came time to eat, I better eat. And if there's a piece of pie left and you're about to throw up, you better eat it because it's going to be gone in about 10 minutes. So I developed this insatiable appetite to eat. My mom is an incredible cook. My wife is an incredible cook. I don't even care. I think the chef down to Burger King is an incredible cook. You know, I, I love to eat anywhere. All right. So I have to watch it because it's a habit that becomes insatiable. Okay, now those are the bad ones. I'll give you one more. Gossip. Anybody here love to gossip? Don't raise your hand. I was just kidding. Okay. People get, uh, become habitual gossips where you just want to know some more information. Not, and I know your motivation is, I just want to know so I can lift them up in prayer. That's a lie. You want to know so you can think you're the first one in the know. So you can call your friends and say, I need you to pray for somebody. Yeah, you, know, you just want to share the stuff, right? It's, it's this thing, easy to start, hard to break. What about, what about the good habits? What about praying every day? What about Bible study every day? What about eating right? What about exercising? What about attending church every week? Great habit. So hard to start, so easy to break. Watch this. If you've been a church attender a lot of your life, 
And in seasons, man, you were just, bam, you were there. You could be counted on. And then other seasons, you weren't there as regularly. How many of you would agree that you missed one Sunday because something came up? You missed another Sunday because something came up. And next thing you know, you've missed for maybe months. Anybody ever done that? Lived in that? Yeah. It's so easy to break a good habit. And so hard to start. Now, God is a God who never changes. And he watches us all the time. And here's what's funny about it. 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah wrote a book and he described what I just shared. Human nature is just the same. We're just humanity, fallen, broken, in dire need of a Savior. And and so why is that? Well, often when it comes to church attendance, because that's what we're talking about. When it comes to church attendance, we allow the wrong people to weigh in on the things that matter most. We allow people to weigh in on our priority list. We watch TV, why we would listen to anything from Hollywood, that's a lie. We, we listen to people in our families, we listen to people in our circle, we listen to people on our teams, we listen to people at work. We listen to people and we allow them to weigh in on on our value system, on our priority system. And, 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 and people will say things like, well... I just, when it comes to church attendance, I can be a Christian and I don't have to go to church. And you know what I say about that? Yes, you can, but you can't be a good one. Did you hear, did you hear that? You can go to church. You can be a Christian and never go to church, but you can't be a good Christian and never go to church. You say, well, that's a little bit judgmental. No, it's what the Bible says. You say, where does it say that? Okay. I'll show you in just a minute. I'll show you one more. Here, here's why it's important that you have a day set aside that you yield and surrender to God and you come together collectively as a church. I've already pointed out, first of all, he's assigned you a place in the local body. He has a gift that's in you and he wants to deploy and utilize your gift in the local body. Not only that, but he is about the church. Listen, listen, the church is not something man created. The church is the forever bride of Jesus, God's son. Why should the church be important to you as a Christian? Now, if you're not a Christian, the church should not matter. But if you're born again in Jesus and his sacrifice, if you've been sealed in the Holy Spirit, adopted into the kingdom, claimed to be a child of God, you have no option. It is not multiple choice. You must, emphatic, exclamation point, you must love his church. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm a Christian? I love Jesus, but I just don't really like the church. Anybody ever heard that? If you said that, stop saying that. That's a sin. You can't be that. You can't love Jesus and not love his church. Why? Why? As a follower of Jesus, you love Jesus and everything Jesus loves. See, it takes down all the barriers. Racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers. Takes away all of that stuff. When you love Jesus, you love everything he loves. Well, I'm not so sure he loved the church. Seriously. He birthed the church. He is the reason for the church. The church is who will be in heaven with him forever. That is the church. So you have to love the church. Just tell your neighbor, boy, I love me some church now. You got to love church. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean you have to love everything about the church, every person in the church. Some of us are hard to love. I say that, just love them at a distance. 
But you've got to love the church. So I, I hear people say, well, I just don't want to be legalistic about it. Seriously? Seriously? You don't want to be legalistic about loving the church and attending faithfully? So you're going to replace legalism to loving the church with being legalistic about attending everything else that the world throws at you? Material accumulation, academic success, athletic uh, success, uh, vacation, free time, relaxation, and here's a good one that's real, just laziness. You're going to be legalistic to that and, and sacrifice the Lord's church and a day surrendered and yielded to him. You're going to sacrifice that on the altar of personal pleasure. Now, that's just straight up hard right there, and it's true. So we got to be careful who we listen to and who weighs into our priority system. So here's a way you can help kind of... Uh, run this through a test to, to determine if it's good information. The first is, consider the credentials of the person who tells you. Just, just consider the credentials. Uh, I have people from time to time that will question things that, that I preach, which is fine. I want you to question. But questioning me helps me learn. But I don't just get up here and open the Bible and say, this is what we're going to learn today. I mean, I really tried because I'm mortified, scared to death of, of, of handling and preaching his word to people. And so people say, well, I just, I just don't know where you got that. And I say, okay, wh where'd you get what you get? Well, I heard this guy say this. That guy's a nut. He's a quack. Why would you listen to him? Okay, you keep listening to him and look and see where you land. Okay, now I don't pretend to have all the answers. But if you ever want to know where I develop my theology and my doctrine, you just come talk to me. Because i got a list as long as my arm. And most of them are old guys, okay? It's the John MacArthur's and the Chuck Swindoll's and the David Jeremiah's and the Adrian Rogers's of the world. It's not some new, cool, skinny, jean-legged, you know, muscled-up preacher. Now, don't get me wrong. They're fine, too. They have an audience, and they proclaim God's word. And I listen to them. They're in my diet, okay? But they, ain't, they have not been at it long enough. They're high-risk because many of them will fall before they ever get like these other old guys. So, so, so consider the credentials. Number two, consider the lives and the results of their beliefs in their life. Look at their life and say, okay, do I want to be like where I'm headed here or do I want to be like that? Okay, consider where they're headed. Number three, consider the end game of that decision. What does that look like not just now? What does that position, that priority, that belief system, what does it look like years from now? Consider the long-term ramifications, not just for yourself, but for your family and for your church. Because every decision, adults, that you make, somebody is, is watching you. So the Lord's Day 2,500 years ago had just become another day. The Lord's Day in 2019 often becomes just another day and we must be where so we need to be zealous we need to be passionate and committed to the lord's church because he loves it and so should we i want you to i want you to be mindful that for the last 200 years of american history one of the di distinguishing factors of whether somebody was a jesus follower a christian or not was the fact that on sunday morning they would leave their house and go attend a worship service, often again on Sunday night, often again on Wednesday night. 
a distinguishing factor that you are sanctified, that you're set apart, different from the world. For the last 200 years was church attendance. And yet today, people take it and people leave it. And that is the status, the nature of our church. So who says we're supposed to be faithful in coming together? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the early church. Right after Jesus ascended and began and birthed the church, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were devoted. Devoted means committed, passionate, zealous, in, not on the surface, but in. Acts chapter two, chapter 2, verse 46, with one accord, that means with unity, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart you see what the early church look like? i mean they can't wait to get together I, I will say this this is i love this and i hear it regularly the only thing i hate about sundays is it's going to be uh, it's going to be a whole week before we have sunday again i love coming to church i'm glad there's somebody else that has a good time coming to church because i have a good time coming to church I, I've been in church my whole life, about 2,800 Sundays, about, about what I can calculate that I've been in church, okay? And there's been a few of them. I'd rather been somewhere else, but it wasn't the church's fault. It was mine, okay? And, and, and I love church being what church is supposed to be, where there's gladness of heart, man. We're, we're coming together and sharing with each other's burdens and rejoicing with each other's celebrations, I just have always thought this was interesting. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John the Revelator, the same John who authored the gospel that we're going to start next week, uh, he got the revelation on the Lord's day. That's how important. I don't think it's just, oh, he, he could have gotten it on Tuesday or Wednesday, but he didn't. He got it on the Lord's day. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, and God gave him the book of Revelation. See, it's, it's important. God is serious about a day given to him. Why? It's just like our money. He knows if he can get a part, he stands a better chance of getting the whole. And if you'll assign a part and be devoted to giving him that part, he stands a better chance at getting the whole. The local church, by definition, is a gathering of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They're committed to meet regularly for worship, teaching, fellowship, and prayer, and who make disciples of all people. A great theologian and historian and preacher of old, his name was John Stott. And in one of his books, this is what he says. If the church is central to God's purpose, as it is seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central in our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the core? Now, that's really cool truth. It's core, the church coming together to worship with each other and encourage each other and, and lift up each other and, and learn together and, and, and leave a change together. There's something about that that's bigger than you and bigger than me. It's the core. It's, it's the core of what Jesus did in, 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 in preparing when he, went to prepare, when he went to prepare a place called heaven for us, he went to prepare it for the church. 
That's, I mean, that's how big it is, all right? It's no small thing. So Hebrews then, chapter 10, verse 24 says, And let us consider now how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meetings, not forsaking assembling togethers, together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other even more. The closer you get to the return of Christ, it's, it's not something that's supposed to fade with time. It's supposed to magnify and, and just take off like a rocket with time. Jesus is coming back. His return is imminent. All prophecies required are fulfilled. He could come back before we finish today. And until he comes, we ought to be excited and motivated to come together and celebrate that great and amazing king who died on a cross to give us life. Amen. Well, so why is the chair up here? Because I want you to know the chair is an important thing. And you have one. You have one of these. You know, we joke sometimes because in churches around the world, sometimes people get in a rut. And typically the ones that, that make the statistic of closing, it's because they start saying things like, excuse me, you got my chair. Excuse me, that's my spot. Okay. Let me just go ahead and tell you, you have a chair, you ain't got a spot. Okay, And when you're not in your chair, it's an empty chair. And when there's an empty chair, it's missing your presence. And the people around you are missing your presence. And see, it's easy for you all to look up here. You expect one person to be here. Me. Brother Joel's here. Going to have church today. Okay. You ought to come up here and look around. On those days, you know, when the planets are aligned and every other opportunity to be somewhere shows up and people are gone and I'm looking at a sea of chairs, it ain't no fun to preach to a sea of empty chairs, okay? I want you to know, it's, I notice when you're not here and you have a seat. Now, on a day like today and the days we've been having where it's crowded, you, you're forced against your will to find you a new spot. Because somebody got your spot. I watch people come in. They go, they head right over there where their spot's going to be. <laughs> and then they look at their spouse. Somebody got our seats. Now, they may not say those words, but deep in the core of who they are, that's what they're thinking. So they meander over here somewhere, and they end up sitting in this place where they don't know nobody. You know? You know that place. You're sitting in it. Because you don't know nobody either. See? We want to sit in our place because we're comfortable, man. We like our spot. And, and, and I know where you sit. I know, I know if you're here. Somebody can call me this week and say, was well, so-and-so there? No. How you know? That unless they were serving in the nursery, which most of you don't, uh, or they're serving in. Oh, did I say that or think that? I meant to just think it. Okay. So, so, so they don't know everybody. You know, you just don't know. And, and, and so... So what happens is people come and, they, and you're in your uncomfortable zone and then other people come and they're uncomfortable and they never land, they never get connected and so they disappear and that's, what, that's the problem in the church today and it's a problem here. We have a great open door, people come in but the back door's almost equally as open. Some land, some come for a while and they leave and they say, um, I, didn't know, I never really got to know anybody while I was there. So let me just go ahead and clear that up. Some of that burden falls on those people who never got to know anybody. 
And so if you're here and you've been coming for a few months and you don't know anybody, let me just go ahead and lay it out there real. Part of that is you. You know, you come in here, I'm afraid to say anything until you're afraid you're going to punch me in the throat, you know. So maybe we're wanting to embrace you and can't, man, you're so distant. But some of it falls on the rest of us, okay. Now I want you to understand something. We don't do a very good job incorporating ourselves or immersing ourselves into the church culture. And we don't do a good job embracing others who come in after us. And so what happens is people show up and they say, man, I, I just don't really know anybody. Right now, if I say, do you feel like you don't know a lot of people? Who would raise your hand and say, yeah? Anybody want to raise your hand? Liars in the church. Okay, those of you who didn't raise your hand, stand up and tell me everybody you know. <laughs> That'll last about six names, okay? Most of us don't even know who's sitting on a row, okay? Now, <laughs> Zane and Mariah, y'all know because y'all brought them. I like that. You bring your whole row, you know them, Okay? <laughs> I love it. You bring the whole row, okay? That's one way you stay out of trouble with the preacher. Bring a whole row, okay? But the rest of us, we, we don't even, I could just start calling out people I know. Hey, tell me everybody's on your row. You're sitting there thinking, please don't, okay? I forgot two of my kids' names. I don't know them all, okay? You don't know their names. You don't know their names. You know why? Because all of these names in here are new names. All of these chairs in here are occupied, for the most part, by people who have new names. Watch this. I'll show you what I mean. I want you to know it's okay not to know too many people, but I'm going to motivate you to start learning them. It's okay for me. I don't know all of y'all. I stand, I'd probably stand a better chance than anybody in here of knowing everybody's name, and I don't know everybody's names. So watch this. If you were here six years ago, if you were here six years ago as part of this church, I want, you, I want you to stand up. Who knew? Thank you very much. Show them some love. If you were not here six years ago, stand up. Now you know why we don't know everybody. You can be seated. Because God is sending us people every week that we don't know. But we're not content to keep it that way. So here's what happens. Kevin comes up here every Sunday and he says, Hey, everybody, I want you to shake somebody's hand. Tell them you're glad you're here. And you turn around and you look at the same faces every week because that's their chair. Okay? And you don't have a clue what their name is. You've looked at them for three years right in the face. Man, I'm so glad you're here. I don't even know your name. I love you so much. I don't even know you. Three years, I don't know you. Okay? And we got this barrier up. Why? Because we think it's going to be embarrassing. Man, I've been shaking their hand for three years, and they don't know my name. I'm just a little bit embarrassed. Let me just go ahead and clear it up. They don't know you either. You don't know their name. They don't know your name. You're on the same page. I'm not content. I don't believe that that's who God wants our church to be. I can't know everybody. I try. So here's what I want you to start doing. When the greeting time comes and after church, I want you to look around and just get vulnerable. Just, just say, hey, I know you're going to think I'm a total idiot. I don't know your name. 
And so I want you to tell me your name if you can tell me mine first. Because <laughs> they don't know you either. They don't know you either. I know you think you're a superstar and everybody knows you. They don't know you, okay? And then say their name's Jimmy. I don't want you. Jimmy, I finally know your name. Don't you walk away because as soon as you walk out that door, the name Jimmy no longer exists in your vocabulary. You don't know what he looks like or nothing, okay? So watch this. I want you to say, well, Jimmy, because our pastor is a goofball, he told me to get your phone number. Now, this is not, you're not trying to pick up somebody, okay? I mean, you're just getting a phone number. You put in your phone because you all have them little smartphones. You put in there, Jimmy, guy behind me at church. Big ugly guy, glasses on or whatever, okay? That way you'll identify him. Put his number in there. Now watch this. Next Saturday, you want to smoke Jimmy, okay? You get out your phone. Next Saturday night about 8 o'clock, hey, Jimmy, this is Joel. You coming to church tomorrow? hope so. I'll be looking for you in that seat, third row, fourth down right behind me, okay? And all of a sudden, what? I'm, ser- I'm, I'm totally serious. All of a sudden, Jimmy just got connected to the church at Sturkey Hills, and to the bigger church, the church of Jesus Christ eternally. He now feels connected. Now, watch this. If you, if you would be, like, delighted for somebody to send you a text and check in to see if you're okay on Saturday night and if you're pl- planning on coming to church tomorrow, if you think that would be kind of warming, raise your hand and say, yeah, I think that would be kind of cool. Yeah, some of y'all are weird. You, you, you staying away from that. No, I don't want nobody. I'm recluse. Okay, I live in a cave. All right? That's who God, I believe, wants to make our church. Boy, I'm out of time already. Okay. Okay. Here's why it's important that you're here also. Okay? Because it's not just about you that your chair is occupied. It's about the people around you. You see that your neighbors watch and see if you, if you leave on Sunday mornings to go to church. And when you get here, the people around you, they watch and see if you're here. The reason we lose our college students predominantly, I believe, is because for about 20 years, a child has watched their parents and watched their priority list. And church has become this thing where, man, I love church and I love Jesus. And as long as there's not something else to do, I'm going to be in his house on Sunday. But if there's anything else under the sun that's an opportunity for me to miss, I'm going to be a part of that. But I love me some church. I love me some church just a little bit less than everything else that comes my way. That's what it says to our children. And our children lock in and they say, okay, this is what I know. My parents love church a little bit less than anything else that might come their way on Sunday mornings. And so when you're here, there's people who aren't here. Watch this. There's people who aren't here today because they've watched you not being here last week. And if, it's, if, and if it's not that important to you, why should it be that important to me? And so your children are watching. You know they're watching. I, every time I say that, I think about Jenny and Adam's little girls going home after a baptism that they saw, and they baptizing each other in the bathtub, okay? So she sent me a video of them baptizing. Now you baptize me. And they didn't know the words. About into that dark, out of the dark, into the light, into the water, out of the dark, baptized, okay? I love it. I love it. They're watching, Okay? Little boys and girls are watching you as as youth students, youth, college. They're looking at you. Young adults as college students are watching you. Old people like us, they're all watching. Our grandkids, our kids, they're watching. It's important. 
It's important that you get serious about making God a priority in your life because people are watching. So this week, I read some. I'm finished. I'm finished on this. This week, I read this information from Tom Rainer on leadership. This, this is why it's a big deal. This is why it's a big deal. He's talking about longevity. I've been here for a little over five years. And, and oh, and I don't take any credit for all of you people that stood up. I'm telling you, God is doing something. How do I know that? Because if he'll do something when I'm connected to it, he's a good, good God. And he's doing something. I'm telling you. He's doing something miraculous and beautiful with his church. And he's inviting us to be in on it. And I'm excited about that. So I read this information, and some of it's alarming, but some of it's encouraging. Trust is built over, five, over time. He goes on to say, it takes typically five years for a pastor to really be trusted and accepted. And so I read this, and I thought, they don't trust me yet? And then I thought, well, as much as they've trusted me in the first five years, man, the next five years are going to be off the chain, all right? So I was, I was encouraged and discouraged at the same time. And the second one was, you know your people better. You know those who are in the game, and you know those who talk as if they are. You know people, so you know who you can go to and say, I know you'll be in on this, because you know they're in the game. And you know those who talk of talk, but are not seriously in. You know your community. This one kind of hurt me. The community we're in is in the, is in the Halls Powell area, North Knoxville. We only moved over here one year ago in August. I haven't been immersed in the culture, in, the, in our community. We're going to this year, Christmas, we're going to do a float in a parade. That's how we're going to do it. Anybody who's ever part of Second Baptist Church, we know how to do a float. It looks like a tribe of Hispanics rolling through town. Flashing. I, that's not a knock on Hispanic. I love Hispanic people. They get it right, man. Loud. Let's turn it up. Let's flash the lights, okay? We will make a statement in the parade. I don't know what the statement will be, but it's going to be loud and bright. Okay, we're going to be immersed in our community. He says, after five years, roadblocks are removed. I like this. Progress then sees barriers as blessings unto growth. Not enough room in the preschool? <laughs> I love it. We're having to park in the grass on, during the winter because we're running out of parking spots. I love it. Having to sit too close to somebody you don't know, <laughs> that's you. I get to be up here all by myself. Okay? I love it. They're all not barriers. They're signs of growth. Three to five years for the vision to become real. People, I see it. People start getting, the people are, we're going to build a building probably next year. I don't know if you know that. Right over there in the field. And it's it's going to be a big project. and It's probably going to happen next year. And for, for a while, you know, I knew it and some others knew it, but now people are like, hey, when we build a building? Hey, when people get inside it. People start feeling it. They buy into the vision that God has placed for our church. And then lastly, a guiding coalition begins to develop where people come alongside, man. And, and it's not, hey, Joel, we need to do this, or hey, Joel, you need to do that. It's, hey, Joel, I noticed this is not happening. Can I take care of that? Can I champion that? <laughs> That's what it starts looking like. And that helps us move to another level so tr 
the statistics that, that, that he then gives about church attendance, why all this is so important, the pastor needs to know this information, that things are changing and people are less committed than they ever were. Um, the older people, traditionalists, born 1945 or before in the last 20 years, attendance percentage has gone down 10 points from 77 to 67 percent. Baby boomers, those of us who were born between 1946 and 1964, used to, 20 years ago, 67% of us went to church. Today, 57% go to church. Generation X, born 65 to 79, went from 62% to 54%. Millennials, they don't even have good numbers on people born between 1980 and 2000. Then, only 42% of millennials attend church. It, that's the culture we live in. And we got to push back. I, I'm not content letting one person go to hell just because we didn't care. I'm content letting somebody, I shouldn't say that, but I did. I'm content letting somebody go to hell if that's where they choose to go. But I'm not content letting them go to hell because we didn't care. And so we're going to be a church that pushes back. And so I got to finish. I gotta finish. I know I will, but nobody'd be here because <laughs> they got an appointment at Aubrey's. So, uh, so here's here's how I'm gonna close. Um, God is alive and at work building His eternal church. I don't pretend to know why He called me to get to, to be honored to, to be privileged to pastor a church so sweet and so good as the church at Sturkey Hills. I don't know why. I don't know why he allowed us to come over here and, and be a part of a revitalization that God just has simply whispered on. I don't pretend to know what tomorrow looks like, but I know in the fiber of my being that it's better than I can imagine. It's that good. Because I know it ain't supposed to be this good this early. It's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to have been this way. And it is. And I think Nehemiah chapter 13 is simply saying, God wants to do something great. Will you let him? Will you interfere? Will you be satisfied going back to where you came from instead of to that place where he wants to take us? I want to go to a new place. I want you to go with me. God's already there waiting on us. And one day we'll look back and say, man, it sure was good to see God do something so great. And I'm going to go on record saying this. If you want to push back against what I just said, if you want to stand in the way instead of standing in the gap in accomplishing all that God wants to do, I can give you a list of other churches that you can go to, okay? Because God's doing something sweet. When I watch Clark up here baptizing them boys, my heart, my heart just jumps, man. My, I, I just smile on the inside. We were up at the lake with college students yesterday trying to kill them with inner tubes. And, and my heart, man, just smiles at, at all that God's doing. When I see all these babies, y'all carrying these babies in here, man, my heart just smiles. 
because that's what God does. And uh, I, I know you can't tell I'm excited about what he's done, but, it, but I am. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord God, I just want to say thank you for being so good all the time. I want to say thank you for loving the unlovable, which I am the chief. I want to say thank you for loving sinful people, champion. I want to say thank you for loving us as much on our worst day as you do on our best. I want to thank you that your love is not contingent upon our goodness. It's just because your love. And God, there's no doubt in my mind that on this very morning, on this very day, there's someone in here who has never received your grace gift. They're out there, outside of your kingdom family. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do them just like it did me so many years ago. Simply reach in and invite them on a new journey in Jesus. God, I pray that the enemy would be bound from their life, that they would be able to make a good decision in receiving and following you and allowing you to be Savior and Lord. God, I pray for those of the rest of us who are on our journey, but maybe our journey has been a little flat. I pray, God, that you will ignite their journey. God, that you will give them bold steps, that they will experience greater things than ever, and they will know from where it came from, and it came from you. So, God, we give you this time. We thank you. Help us respond to what you tell us in Jesus' name.